are uh, continuing a, uh, a series this week on guilt and shame. Uh, that's why we come to church, to feel bad and uh, guilty about things. You're in the right place if you want to feel bad about stuff. Well, what we're doing is we want to really um, redeem these words or see what God would have to say about two experiences I think that we all have. What we talked about, this is, we're doing a, a four-part series. We introduced the topic last week, and the idea was that we often see guilt and shame as very similar ideas, or as ideas that have a similar um, solution to them. Um, we, some people will say that, that guilt is a, is a feeling and shame is an identity. Have you ever heard that before? And that we feel bad about things. And then if we really own feeling bad about things, it becomes our identity. And then we're living in shame. What we looked at last week is that maybe the Bible is teaching us something different than what secular psychology is teaching us. And uh, what we often think, I think, inside of the church is that the solution to both guilt and shame is always to understand forgiveness in a deeper and more profound way. And what we tried to suggest last week is that guilt is not, sorry, shame is actually not overcome by receiving more forgiveness. There's a better and different way that the Bible teaches us to overcome shame. So let's jump into uh, this week's talk and hopefully we'll flesh that out a little bit more. If, you, if that didn't make any sense to you, uh, go on to our website, ianvan.ca. You can listen to the podcast. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so what we are saying is that our society uh, has two pursuits. If you look at Western society, I think we can summarize it at least in these two ways. That what we want to do as a people is we want to feel good and we want to look good. The first thing is we want to feel good. So we think that the problems that we have have nothing to do with reality. It's just our feelings about them. And so we focus a lot on having self-esteem, uh, positive self-talk, feeling good about ourselves, that we're really not that bad, that deep, 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 deep down we're really, really nice people. And uh, we just need to get in touch with that. And so the idea is, is that uh, what society is telling us is that you and I need to figure out how to feel better about ourselves and about the world around us. When we look perhaps at more Eastern culture, the idea here would be image, where we need to look good in front of others. And again, these are gross generalizations. I know that we don't all fall into either of these camps but it's just a way of looking at things. And that uh, uh, what Eastern cultures, while Western cultures value more individuality, Eastern cultures can value more conformity. And you don't want to look out of place. You want to fit in and be accepted. And you want to make sure that everybody is respecting you and, and uh, you're in good relationship with them. And so we can often emphasize looking good. The problem with pursuing feeling good and looking good is that our guilt 
and our shame still persist. No matter how good we try to feel, no matter how much we try to present ourselves well to others, there's still inside of us an underlying guilt and shame. So to deal with this persistence of guilt and shame, we do what has been done for literally thousands of years, started in Genesis chapter 3, is we either hide or we blame. The two classic ways to deal with guilt and shame is you just don't let anybody see you. And if they do see you, then you blame somebody else for your problems. And while that's the most common way to deal with these issues, it really isn't a solution at all. So what we want to look at today then is how do we positively overcome guilt and shame? And we're going to be looking at two passages. The first is going to address guilt and shame together. The second one is going to be focusing particularly on shame because I think that this is such a, a grossly misunderstood word that we need to really focus on it today. So the first passage that we're going to be looking at is Revelation 12, verses 10 to 11. There it is. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. So this is Satan who has been thrown down to earth. Good news for heaven, not so good news for us down here. But the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. So uh, the idea is, is that there, you and I have an enemy that is just accusing us day and night. Talk about guilt and shame. Just not even necessarily for legitimate reasons, but just condemning us and saying that we're no good and using labels that are the most negative labels that you could describe yourself in. Those are the labels that the enemy uses towards you. So when you have thoughts going through your head that are condemning thoughts, it could very well be that it's not just you. That there is an enemy that is actually speaking these things into your mind and accusing you night and day, trying to steal away your faith in Jesus. So the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And here's the way that we overcome blame and accusation and condemnation. It's in two ways. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death, which is part of their testimony. So, uh, how do you feel about yourself? Do you feel positive? Do you feel negative? When you feel negative, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? How do you feel about your, your body image? Or your intelligence, your popularity, your success in life, your ability to connect to others. How do you feel about these things? It's very, very easy to simply have these areas of our life run through our mind and we just experience guilt and condemnation in all these areas. The way that this passage encourages us to overcome guilt and shame is first through the blood of the Lamb. That Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he has canceled our debt. The, uh, the condemnation that we feel has been paid for 
and we have been cleansed. What we talked about last week, and it needs to be said this week, that uh, we give much, uh, too much respect to our emotions. And if we feel guilty, we go, man, I just feel so guilty, and I don't know how to, how to get a better feeling. I, I just, I feel overwhelmed by my feelings. And the only way that we can overcome a feeling of guilt is to challenge it with reality. Not challenge it with another positive feeling. That's combating feelings with feelings. That's never going to work. The way that we overcome a guilty feeling is by looking at the fact of who Jesus says that we are. And if he says that I am forgiven, if he says that I'm loved and accepted, if he says that I have been cleansed by my sin, then regardless of what I believe, that fact is more true than my latest feelings. And so we conquer a feeling of guilt with the fact of forgiveness and cleansing. Isn't that a better solution than trying to muster up a more positive feeling and kind of suppress all those negative things? No, we say that my feelings submit to the fact, to the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Now, the second part is it says that they overcame him, these accusations, this condemnation, by the word of their testimony. Now, the first half, if you've been in church for a while, that's pretty familiar. That the way that we overcome our guilt is we receive the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. That's common. But this second part is disturbing. And I think this second part refers to shame and not guilt. And it says the way that you overcome shame is by the word of your testimony. What a... I mean, this is challenging. Because the way that you're going to get out of feeling ashamed is not simply by the fact of what Jesus has done in forgiving your sins, but there actually needs to be a testimony of how you're living. It is a testimony is evidence of my new creation and my new identity in Christ. So the enemy comes and condemns us and says, you should be ashamed of who you are. It's disgusting. And the way that you live your life, the way that you condemn, uh, the way that you conduct your affairs, you should be ashamed. And this passage says that the way to overcome that shame is to say, I beg your pardon. I have a testimony that I have been made new in Christ and I walk in a new way. Now, I'm not a perfect man, but that imperfection has been solved by forgiveness. And the way that I live my life is a declaration that I have been made new in Christ and your accusations don't hold water against me. They're unfounded. Have you ever said that? Have you, I mean, have you ever read the Psalms and David says, I am a righteous man. 
good man following the ways of the Lord. And this is my defense against my accusers and against my enemies. Have you ever said that? Now, if you're in the church for a while, you're trained not to do that. You're trained to say, you know what? Save the grace of God. I'm just a, I'm a horrible person. I'm a worm. There's nothing good in me. I have no righteousness. And, uh, and it's just God's good. And if he wasn't good, I'd be going to hell. And so this is, you know, it's not looking good for me. Save the grace of God. And, uh, and what this passage says is that if you're going to walk out of shame, if you're going to walk out of shame, you're going to need to have a testimony of righteousness. Evidence that the presence of God has made you a new creation. That's a different way of thinking. Now, that might condemn you. You go, man, I don't have a very good testimony. I don't, I don't do very much for Jesus at all. Then you should feel ashamed. The only way that you're going to overcome shame is by having a testimony. Now, you might think that that's condemning you. I think it's giving you a way out that doesn't have to do with the attack of Satan. It has everything to do to say, today, I can actually walk righteously. Not perfectly. That's arrogant, and that's untrue. First John 1 tells us that. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. So we're not talking about perfection at all. But what we are talking about is a testimony of the power of God in our life. And we can walk in that, and there comes on us a dignity, a respect, an honor that is legitimate. Let's keep going with this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 12. This is, uh, this is just an excellent passage. It talks about the difference between uh, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Here's what it says. This is the apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. And what he did is he uh, challenged them on their behavior, on their conduct. And he didn't sweep it under the carpet. He didn't hide it. He confronted the church on their behavior. And, and here's what he says. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Sorrow, repentance, salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. Now, listen to the evidence, the testimony of the Corinthian church 
when they were faced with their shame. This is how they responded when their shame was exposed. Look at what has been produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. Indignation is anger. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And I wrote to you so that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. That you would know that, yeah, you are walking in righteousness. Now, you guys, this is just so foreign for me. Look, if you went and told somebody that you did some wrong things, what, what do you want them to do for you? What do you, what do you hope you finally had the courage to, to confess that you did a wrong thing? What do you hope somebody would do? Well, the first thing that we had hoped for is that we would be forgiven. And that's what we found in, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 12, is that the blood of the Lamb would forgive us our sin. But the second thing that would overcome our shame is that we would be exhorted to hate our sin and we would be challenged to live in a new way. Now, I don't know about you, but that might be disappointing for you. That we would want the first part, the forgiveness of sin. Oh, I'm totally into that. But the second part is, now I would like you to show indignation and to prove yourself innocent in this matter. This is exactly what we see Jesus doing in the woman caught in adultery. We see him give two responses, not one. When they go to pick up stones to throw at her, Jesus says to the crowd, whoever's without sin, you cast the first stone. And so they all walk away. And then Jesus says to her, you know, where are, you, where are your accusers? Is, any, is anyone left to condemn you? She says, no one. And then he says these two things. Neither do I condemn you. That's the solution to guilt. Forgiveness of sins. Neither do I condemn you. And here's the second part. Go now. And leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Your guilt has been removed. But for your shame to be removed. Go and leave your life of sin. And now you will have a testimony. That you have been made new by my words. Cleansed and honorable. An honorable woman. Go and leave your life of sin. So how is shame reversed how is shame reversed i'd like to give you three things it's a process i think and shame is reversed first of all through honesty one of the things that our guest speaker spoke about so well this weekend was um uh that what our guilt and shame always drive us to do is to hide and uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever gone through the experience 
of having something that you're thoroughly embarrassed about. You don't want anybody to know. You did some things that you want to make sure stay a secret. And if you decide to keep your sin a secret, shame will eat you away. You will go deeper and deeper into darkness in an attempt to cover your shame. And I know whether I've talked to pastors or I've talked to my wife, talked to other mentors, I go, oh man, I got to talk about this. And my heart starts pumping. And I go, oh man, if there's any way out of this moment, I do not want to talk about my ugliness. I do not want to do this. But I've got to. And so in this, in this passage, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, it was Paul who actually exposed their shame. I think it's better if we get a, a jump start on that and do it ourselves. But either way, the way that you're going to come out of shame is by being honest about what you've done. Where you let yourself be known. There is a prayer that David prays in Psalm 83 that is a shocking prayer. Psalm 83, verse 16. This is, this is a prayer. I, I've never prayed this prayer. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Cover their faces with shame, Lord, that they may seek your name. Did you know that you and I will never seek the righteousness of God. We will never seek to be covered by his spirit and his grace, made new, become a new creation, unless our faces are covered with shame. Our faces, not some hidden, but that we see our sin for what it really is. If you want to be free from shame, the first thing that you need to admit is that you should be ashamed. And that the things that you've done wrong are shameful things, dishonorable things. And you need to let it be put in front of your face because only then will, they, will we seek the name of God. That's number one, honesty. Number two is hatred. We looked in this passage uh, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. These are aggressive words. So we, we look at who we really are, and then we hate it. We hate it. Without a desire to vindicate yourself. Without hating to be known as a dishonorable person. Quite honestly, we will not change. And I can pray for you to be forgiven and that you'd understand the Father's heart and that you'd be cleansed of your sin and that you would know that you're accepted just the way you are. And unless you hate your sin, you will never overcome your shame. You will not have a testimony. You will not have evidence of being a godly, righteous 
man or woman. Unless we are legitimately ashamed of our selfishness and its effects on others, we will not change. Something that we preach in this church because I believe it's at the core of what the Bible teaches is that the road to change is always through death and resurrection. And so we're always very keen to understand the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus and how we're made new and we have a new identity. But Scripture's clear in Philippians 2 and elsewhere that unless we die and admit who we are and come to the cross, we'll never experience the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus. One of the conclusions that I've made when I look at areas of my life that are unchanging, maybe you think I'm hard on myself, I don't feel this way. Uh, When I look at areas of my life where I've not changed, here is my conclusion. I don't hate it enough. I just don't hate it enough. I still kind of like it. Now, I feel bad for certain parts of it. I mean, I hate that other people are affected by it, or I I don't want to look bad in Christian circles, or, I mean, there's... There's certain aspects, but the sin itself, I like it. I like doing it. And unless we hate our sin, we will not change. We will not change. And another word for hate is to be ashamed. And so we run away from feeling that we we run away from shame because we don't want to feel bad, but unless we feel shame, we'll never come to honor and respect. You tracking with me on this? This is a big deal, you guys. It's a big deal. I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but there's life after death if we let ourselves go through this valley. And finally is honor. Godly sorrow not a sorrow that leads to death. The sorrow that leads to death is all about the accuser. It's guilt and blame and condemnation. There's no, there's no righteous appeal in it. It's just you're hopelessly horrible and nothing can ever change. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow has no hope in it. It's just you're bad and you're stuck there. Godly sorrow trusts in the resurrection power of Jesus that makes us new, that clothes us with his righteousness, that makes us new, not just cosmetically on the outside so that we can conform and look like a good Christian, but internally. Godly sorrow creates an earnest desire to demonstrate innocence. Look, In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Innocent in the matter. Paul, they were guilty. He goes, no, 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 no. No, they're innocent in the matter. No, they did it wrong, don't you see? No, that's all been forgiven. And they proved themselves to be innocent in this matter. Would you let yourself view an area of sin in your life, and say, I, by the grace of God, I am going to prove myself innocent in this matter. I'm not addicted to pornography. 
I'm not defined by my alcohol. I'm not defined by whatever addiction. I'm not defined by my anger, my selfishness, my egotism. No, I'm going to prove myself that I've been made new by the work of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to demonstrate this. I am deciding to be an honorable man in this area of my life. You're honest, you hate it, and you commit to honor. I asked my daughter if uh, I could share this story. And uh, now I have just, uh, Jessica is a wonderful daughter. And she did something bad just once. She's only done something bad once. So this is, it's just once. But it was kind of bad. And uh, uh, this was a few years ago. She, uh, she uh, was at school. She went out with a few of her friends. And she stole something from the corner store up uh, up the block. Was it chocolate bars or something? Yeah, chocolate bars. It's worth it, getting a chocolate. No. Um, and so, uh, so she, she, stole, she stole a chocolate bar, a couple of chocolate bars, something like that. And she just reminded me of this just, just uh, this last week. I'd forgotten this story. But uh, I asked her, you know, so why? Like she hasn't stolen anything since. Is that true? Good. And, uh, and uh, I said, so, so, you know, what, what caused you to, to change? And she says, Dad, when you, uh, when you found out, you, uh, you wouldn't look me in the eye. And you couldn't talk to me. And she says, uh, I was so ashamed. I never wanted to see that look of disappointment on your face again. And uh, she is no longer a thief. (laughs) And uh, she is walking in honor in this area of her life. Okay, do you see the process? Honesty, exposure being honest about what happened, hating it, being ashamed, and then making an agreement before God that I will be an honorable man. I will be an honorable woman. And I'm so proud of my daughter. We all do things like that, everybody in this room. But to see her covenant in her heart to walk in righteousness just makes me, she proved herself innocent in this matter. And I never look at her in that other way. I trust her implicitly. My friends, would you please not let the enemy lie to you that you can't be righteous? It's a lie from the pit of hell. You have been born again by the Spirit of God and you are made to be righteous. Be honorable. Let yourself be honorable. So, we don't, in closing, we don't own 
our worldly or sinful identity. Uh, something that we ask in transformations, and, and it's always interesting when I, I watch people's faces when I ask this question. I'll say, deep, deep down, if you were just to relax and just be yourself, you're not being self-controlled or concentrating, you just, just relax and just be yourself, would you be a sinner or a saint? What would you be? You just let loose. Would you be a sinner or a saint? The Bible says, to the saints, I write this, to the church, that who you are because of Jesus Christ is he sees you as a saint. My friends, live up to that. Live up to it. Because it is who you are. And when you sin, you have permission to say, wow, that was out of character. Can't believe I did that. That's not me. I don't do that stuff. I'm a Christian. And I uphold the name of my king, my father. I uphold his name. That's who I am. I know what was going on there. I, I lost my head for a minute. I forgot who I am, who he's made me to be. We do not own our worldly identity. I'll never have self-control. That's just who I am. I've, had tr I've tried to have self-control. I've never had self-control. And I'm going to walk in shame for the rest of my life. You'll say, no, that's not true. That's not true. I've been, I've been made new. I've been born again. I remember my addiction. I remember what it felt to have self-hatred. I remember it very, very well, like it was yesterday. But it was 30 years ago. And the, the Spirit of God set me free. And I'm a new man. Not by my own effort, so that no one can boast. But the grace of God was effective in me and changed me. So we don't own our worldly identity, but listen to this. If I, can, if I can just say this, nor do we fake it. We also don't walk into church and someone says, how are you doing? Great, great, praise God. I've always been doing great. I'm dying inside, but I'm great. I'm going to tell you how great I am. I read my Bible this week, I'm great. And we just fake it. We just smile and we just hope that the church will accept us. You will stay in your shame if you fake it. If you are in a culture that is about external conformity, you will stay in your shame. We have to be honest. And in that vulnerability, hate our sin and choose honor. So we don't own our worldly identity, identity and we don't fake it. We prove that worldly identity wrong. Prove Satan wrong. Prove him wrong. Prove to the world that Jesus Christ is great and powerful, able to overthrow strongholds. Prove to the world who Jesus declares himself to be. That's what we do. So let me close in this final question. Worship team, you can come on up. Has God's spirit enabled you to be righteous or not? 
Let me ask you again. Focus one more question. Has God's Spirit enabled you to be righteous or not? Have you been made new in Christ? Has the old gone and the new come? Now, we're not talking perfectionism. We're not talking legalism. That's faking it. That's faking it. But we can walk in righteousness. And in that honor, our shame is lifted. Legitimately. Not because we hid. Not because we tried to look good. But it will be legitimately lifted. Because we've received what the Spirit of God has freely granted to us. Let's please stand together. I just wanted to affirm this. Um, <clears throat> Some of you might have heard about this. Uh, you can actually be praying for us. This Saturday, um, we are, we're having a training session for a bunch of youth in the city. Because uh, it's looking like, uh, by the grace of God, uh, we're going to be able to have a, uh, an alpha, a youth alpha, in probably over half the schools in the lower mainland, student run at lunchtime. It's pretty amazing what God's doing. So, that's cool. That's really cool. I'm really excited for it. And uh, I get to stand in front of these 200 kids on Saturday. And uh, we get to, to kind of say how change happens. And uh, a huge part of me just wants to, like, give them a pep talk and have them believe in a video series and that snacks help, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard. Um, I, I, if we did that, it'll, ju- it'll be a good video series. Some seeds will get planted. God will use it. But if we're talking about change, yeah. we're talking about a, a, a generation having a course correction, uh, then these kids, their hearts have to break. And they, there has to be a sense of honor, like we, bringing glory to God, a, a hatred of the way things are going. I, it's overwhelming. I'm not as eloquent as you are. I don't know how to say these things in a way that doesn't sound like condemnation. You can be praying for that. But uh, I'm just kind of done, hey, with, with, with trying to pitch systems. And, uh, you know, when you feel it, we'll be here. Uh, I'm really praying that God will bring some conviction. So um, please be praying for that for us, you guys, because this is, this is what the next generation needs to hear. And everything in me, everything in me wants to be politically correct. Everything in me wants to preach a gospel that's only of forgiveness, as true as it is, and doesn't call people to something. Doesn't call people to expect God to move in a big way. Doesn't own the personal side of what is that, that going to cost me? And so I... Like, I, I have the privilege of looking, I mean, this fall, I looked a thousand kids in the eye over the course of a couple nights, and I looked at them and just, you know, tried to preach truth to them. And it is, I just got to be honest, um, like, the enemy has a, just a grip on the life of the teenagers of our city. Sin is so strong, and it is prevalent, and, and we're losing, and it just grips me. And, uh, and standing up there and seeing, try to feel it more, kids. I can't do it anymore. Because it isn't working. It isn't working because I don't think that's the whole gospel. And there's something countercultural about this message. 
that I think is the seed of why Vancouver is the source of th- something shifting. It's, it's going to be the source of something incredible happening. And I don't think it's because we got slick and because Alpha helped and because worship nights were what, whatever. It's not because of that. I believe God wants to bring a Holy Spirit-inspired conviction to the hearts of this generation. So please pray with us. Help us. Because uh, this is really difficult and the enemy is not liking it. I promise you that. The enemy is not liking this because we're getting to the core of something that I believe is really, really important. So please stand with us in this. So I agree with everything you said. Thanks, Jonathan. We were at, uh, Jonathan and I were at a consultation. There was, uh, I don't know, 100 or so pastors came together in the city to pray for our city, to pray for the nation, and to believe God to do something great here. And uh, one of the speakers who is a probably the nation's most foremost Christian sociologist, he says that there's one definition that you can summarize what the spirit of Canada is, and it's hyper-individualism, hyper-individualism. And what we are longing to set people free from is that that to, to, to move beyond ourselves in seeing we're no longer the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, and he's a hero, not metaphorically. He's a hero because our sin is truly dealt with, and our righteousness is truly granted to us. And so, Father, now we resist the condemnation that would make this all about us and our performance. And we put it on you and we say, God, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us. And we thank you that these gifts are effective so much so that they would prove our innocence. And Father, I ask as a people that you would not allow us to come under the weight of performance and condemnation and works righteousness. Those are from the enemy but that as we receive your forgiveness thoroughly, we then would be able to stand on that forgiveness with honesty, hatred, and honor. Not to earn our salvation, but to express our salvation, that you truly change lives. Father, would you put inside of us that kind of indica- uh, indignation, that kind of desire to vindicate ourselves, to show you, to show the world that you are worthy of honor and glory because you change lives. Put inside of us a holy, passionate conviction. We cry out for these things as we worship you.